the ideas that we attribute to bodies are arbitrary and often accepted but don't really exist. Bodies are very malleable substances that can become whatever they want. Hello and welcome to the Art Guide Australia podcast with Tiani Mikas. This episode is the first in a short series centred on the ideas of inflation and conflation, linking with a touring exhibition aptly titled Conflated. Whether metaphorical or material, ideas of inflation and deflation can be taken in creative, environmental and political ways. The artists in Conflated show this in many forms, which Zoe Baston speaks to in this podcast. Zoe is one of the co-curators and exhibiting artists in Conflated. While known for her dance and choreography practice, Zoe also works across sculpture, video, radio and printmaking. Zoe talks about the ideas behind Conflated, both as an exhibition and a concept, as well as how she began dancing at an incredibly young age, how dance can be seen as a gendered form, and what transformative possibilities Zoe looks to beyond this. We also talk about queer politics, shame, how bodies are objectified in art and life, and Zoe's advice to younger artists. And before we get started, a kind thank you to our sponsor for this series, Nets Victoria, who are nationally touring Conflated, assisted by the Australian Government's Visions of Australia program and the Victorian Government through Creative Victoria. I thought we'd start by talking about the recent show that you've curated, Conflated, which is a group exhibition co-curated by you and Claire Watson, and it features 11 really brilliant artists, including yourself. What was it about the word or the concept of conflated that interested you? Ah, that's a great question. Um, Claire and I were working, both working together in Nets Victoria at the time, which is a regional touring organisation that takes um, exhibitions around the country to regional galleries. And we were really struggling with the ecological impact of the shows that we were taking on the road and how many trucks Mm. and how much carbon emission was being caused by the exhibitions we were touring. So we had this idea of making a show that was full of inflatables, that it would be blown up and then fit in a really small truck and be a kind (laughs) of like packaged up bite-sized show that would then have a little bit less of environmental footprint. Mm -hmm. And that was our kind of like initial brainstorm on a lunch break idea. And I have loved inflatables for a long time, a deep interest in like sculptural practice and sculptural form and the kind of sculptural potential with performance. So immediately some artists came to mind. I've, um, I've worked with David Cross a lot over the years and his beautiful inflatable installations that audience members can participate in and um, really appealed to me. So we kind of started thinking about artists and thinking about how artistic ideas could be conflated in inflatables and how we would commission artists to make inflatables even if it was a bit outside their practice. Can you give an example in the show of how that concept works, whether it's pretty literal or pretty metaphoric? Yeah, for sure. Um, So we're really interested in using like the inflatable as both a material and a metaphor um, and thinking about how inflatables and the politics of air operate in contemporary life. And each of the artists approach that really differently. So we started commissioning at the beginning of the pandemic in about May 2020. 
It was the first time I'd ever had a curatorial meeting with an artist on Zoom. Um, and it was. <laughs> I bet you got very good at it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, there was many of them. Um, and I remember it was just about the time of the Black Lives Matter protests in New York and talking to James Nguyen about the politics of air and how breathing functions in the body and he was really interested in ASMR videos at the time and how mm. the sound of breathing kind of perforates how we listen and how bodies are tuned to other bodies. Um, and he made this very beautiful immersive sound installation that explores those issues and is a real response to the context of the time and looks at inflation not in like a physical sense but through sound Mm. and how the sound of breathing and air is yeah such a kind of fundamental force in society and in life yeah no that's so fascinating when you are curating a show like this are you thinking about how an audience is going to receive the works or what they'll feel or are you more focused on I guess doing the best by the artists and showing those works in the best way possible yeah for me those two things have a lot to do with each other. I think when we were putting together a list of artists that we wanted to approach, we wanted to make sure it was a well-rounded show in the forms that things would take in the end. Um, Like we weren't prescriptive to the artists, they could really approach the concept as they liked and from their own practice in whichever way they liked, but to have people that use dance and people that explore sound and also physical installations and to kind of approach this topic from as many different mediums as possible which is important for the audience experience of the show at the end and then also all of these artists have deeply kind of political and profound approaches to the body whether that that's their own body in a political sense or the body politic and I thought that would be really important for regional audiences to engage with because most of these artists are from the city and the audiences that will see this show don't often have access to kind of the contemporary art that happens in Melbourne. So I was thinking about bridging that divide as well. I really like how the idea of air and breath enters the show so much. What were you, because I mean you're a dancer and I guess is breathing quite important to that and were you thinking about that as much as the political manifestations of breath? Mm, That's an interesting question. Yeah, I I do think about breath a lot in terms of my kind of personal dance practice, but I think I was really thinking about how air is captured and held and how air can make a form sculptural and, like, the amazing potential of, like, you know when you see jumping castles and they're just, like, literally bursting at the seams? When we were talking about this project originally, David gave me a book that's called Bubble Texture. Okay. I like architecture and bubbles. It just had all of these amazing forms that people had made that used air's capacity and air's like roundness to fill them up and make them swell. And it was really from that kind of more sculptural interest that I was like, ah, and the body does that too. And how do we talk about breath? And then conversations with artists kind of flowed on from there. Yeah, and there's something so playful about inflatables, like very childlike and wondrous, and it just immediately feels fun when you encounter an inflatable. Yeah, and they're so uncanny. Like, Mm. I think they have a real, really interesting potential to explore quite difficult issues, and this show doesn't shy away from things like this work that approaches colonisation and racism and ecological destruction and quite 
twisted psychological interventions. Yeah. You know, we worked with artists who were doing quite hard-hitting contemporary um, research and inflatables also have that kind of darker side mm. in the, like, the danger for jumping castles to go wrong and the risk involved in interacting with a work that is blown up. And I think that kind of two-sidedness really appealed to me. Changing track just a little bit, but you're an artist as well as a curator. I am. Do you find, is it a totally different process doing both things? And do you find that it's hard getting (laughs) back into a process of creating art when you've been doing, because curating is, it's so creative, but there's so many practical aspects to it as well. Mm, mm -hmm, Yes. Um, Yes. It's hard to juggle, especially when I have a a habit of curating myself into the shows that I make, um, which is good and bad. I like to think of myself as like a player slash coach. I like having both the artist experience of making the work and thinking through that side of the show, thinking about how I will not just create the kind of conceptual brief and research into what the show will be about but also how my practice might respond to that. But um, it does definitely involve wearing two hats <laughs> and sometimes the transition's quite difficult. I was lucky to have, yeah, timelines for this show where I could do one thing and then the other. And then on top of that, I mean, you work between so many different forms. Like it's pretty amazing. There's sculpture, dance, choreography, videos, radio, printmaking. You've written a PhD. Rather than seeing them as separate forms, are they all quite entangled for you? Yeah. I think dance is my first language and it was really given to me. Like I come from the Mangala tradition, which is has a legacy in German expressionist dance. And my teacher's mum immigrated here in the 50s and kind of brought German expressionism to Australia, which I've been researching recently, which is very fascinating. And I started doing that kind of dance when I was 18 months old. That is so young. So young and I loved it. I've always been obsessed with it. So when I was 15, I started teaching kids how to do it and I used to dance at the school for like three or four times a week and it was just so much a part of my life. So as I was going through art school, I studied sculpture undergrad. I was dancing also and that was really like how I approached the world and that philosophy of German expressionist dance, what they call creative dance, is really about the art of movement. And they had a lot of installation practices and they had a lot of techniques that were interested in kind of political and personal expressive transformation, which I think is really quite central to my work. I'm interested in the capacities of dance and how they kind of feed into other things. So it is a diverse array of mediums that I bounce between, Mm. but... um, that kind of central concern is like, how do you make dance manifest in words? How do we write about it? How do we capture it on video? Where does the knowledge lie? How can we have conversations about it? What's queerness in dance? (laughs) Um, And all kind of comes from this central, like, I really love dancing a lot. I didn't realise you've been dancing since you were 18 months (laughs) old. That's, that's amazing. Was, were your parents I mean, obviously they would have been the ones who first got you into it. Were they dancers of any kind? Uh, No. (laughs) No, neither of my parents dance at all. And I've seen them dance very rarely, which is hilarious. But um, my mum is an artist. Um, She's a textile artist and a weaver. 
and um, was very passionate. So I grew up in her studio and was very like given a very artistic childhood and she really encouraged me. Um, and my dad's an economist, so he gives me the academic side and I really merged their careers <laughs> at some point. <laughs> Did you, when you were dancing when you were younger, do you remember dancing that young? Yeah, uh, not that young, but I do have, I have lots of memories over the years and it's strange to kind of have a place like, that dance school closed uh, three years ago, but it still exists as a school. One of my friends runs it now. So it's a place I go to regularly. And I have been to that building once a week for my entire life. And that's a really nice through line. There's a lot, those walls really talk. Yeah. So was there a moment in art school then, I mean, you're studying sculpture. How did you realise that the dance could also be part of the art practice. There was one moment. There was like an aha moment. <laughs> I was in second year and I, I really, I loved art school so much because I loved talk, talking about ideas and learning about philosophy and I really like making things, but I found sculpture quite restrictive. And at the time I was taught by a lot of old men. This is a classic story. I didn't have any female lecturers in first year and I learned how to carve and I learned how to cast and I did very traditional techniques. And I hated it. I didn't know why I was expected to do any of the things that I was doing because I was so much interested, more interested in the concepts than the form. And I found it really restrictive. And then in second year, I had a class that was taught by Jill Orr, performance artist. Yeah. And there was one subject that was performance art. And I was half an hour early to class. I used to wear my <laughs> leotards and just like bounce off the walls. It was my favourite thing. And I was like, oh, maybe I can be me and I can do this thing that I'm passionate about and do art as well. And yeah, like I, I applied to do sculpture because I didn't want to go to dance school. I knew that I wanted, I didn't want to learn to be a dancer. I didn't want to do ballet and have all the restriction. So I'm very grateful that I went to art school yeah, and got to kind of figure out how I wanted to dance a bit. Yeah. How does it feel when you dance? <laughs> oh, that's a great question. The end of my PhD, the final chapter is about agency and freedom. And for me, dance is always a very transformative process. It doesn't matter how I'm feeling at the day and I had quite a rough childhood so it didn't matter what was happening at home or what was going on behind the scenes. I would come to dance and it would make me feel alive again and mm. give me this like, yeah, capacity to be whoever I wanted to be and however I wanted to be. That's a truly generous gift to give a child. Yeah, no, it is. Yeah, for any child to find their art form, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, and I still feel like that. Like I, I still feel like I dance like a little kid. Yeah. I was curious though, and this is something that I think a lot of performers have, and I know I feel it a bit when I perform music live, that suddenly you're performing and then you're just not. It's all over. And I'm, I've just blinked away the entire moment. And I mean, something else kind of takes over, like you're conscious, but you're not conscious. And I wondered if that's a thing you get into when you're performing. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when I'm speaking, actually. I did a project last year in 2021. I worked with a mental health advocate on a project that was about her lived experience of having an eating disorder. And I wrote poetry that was about her life. And I was speaking and dancing at the same time. And that was 
one of the most challenging things I've ever done. It's like some kind of cerebral brain disconnection. <laughs> yeah, I remember filming that work and asking the videographer afterwards if I got the words right because I just had no idea. It was like some kind of cerebral disconnection between the words I was speaking and the dancing I was doing. And I knew that I got the moves right, but <laughs> I just had no clue what was happening. You've talked about in other interviews being a younger dancer and recognising that dance is a gendered form and how it does often adhere to really conventional ideas, particularly of femininity. How did you start to realise and question that? Because especially when you're a child, you you're, you just inherit cultural schemas that you often don't question. Yeah, I, I had an interesting journey. I think the style of dance that I was taught, this dancing that I've done since I was very small child is very inclusive of all genders, is very tolerant of queerness, is very accepting and all about how you want to dance. It's your expression. So it's very um, self-centred and there's no preconceived forms that you have to do. So I started doing more kind of conventional or traditional styles of dancing, the jazz tap ballet rhetoric when I was 13 or 14. And by then I'd had a different thing. So suddenly having to conform, wearing tights, being told that I was too tall and too loud and <laughs> being told very clearly that you partnered with boys. I remember being a little kid and being like on two halves of the room, like girls on one wall, boys on the other and like looking across at them. And I was like, but I want to look sideways. And I really clearly have this memory of being like, but I want to look sideways. Like I want to look at her and not knowing why that wasn't okay. And what it was about that, that kind of, yeah, started to teach me shame about my queerness and my attraction. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, ballet is a very old form and it's taught with cultural and societal conventions that bleed in and Lots of schools, lots of queer kids that have positive experiences. But I think this idea that partnership happens between men and women and the typical kind of femininity that it enforces is, yeah, it's really dangerous for young kids yeah. that don't fit that. No. How do you move past that sense of shame? Well, now on my team at the moment for a project we're making, we are all queer. I have four dancers that work for me and we're all queer. So we kind of talk about the sense of shame a lot and ways in which we can work around it. And I think it's it's really difficult when you've been taught to dance in front of a mirror and been told, you know, how much you weigh is a problem and your certain way you point your foot is a problem. And, like, we talk a lot about kind of letting all of that go and I think also you have to do something with shame like it it needs to be eradicated okay and for me that was really like finding community and finding lots of people that are older that have done this first and I run um the queer theory reading group just because I was a baby PhD student and <laughs> I really wanted to learn about queer theory and I didn't know how to do it so I just found lots of smart people to ask questions to which is great which is very important. You also talk about objectivity a lot and being objectified and, and how some bodies are more objectified than others and other bodies are marginalised. 
And I was curious how you deal with objectification because I think some artists and writers try to expand the sense of what bodies are valued, while other artists just kind of want to remove objectification in the gaze altogether. Yeah, I'm fascinated by objectification. I'm also fascinated by the kind of philosophy of the body and ideas of like subject v object. And I um, did a very long spiel in my PhD about Cartesian philosophy and how patriarchal it is because often the bodies that are valued are white cis male bodies and the rest of us have varying degrees of privilege to operate as bodies within. And I guess for me, coming from a sculptural practice, I felt very objectified in that world. Like, as I said, I was taught by all male lecturers and often when I made performance work in that space, lecturers commented on how I looked. And I was also in my like late teens and early 20s catwalk model for a while. So I was in a world where talking about my body was very normalised, like as if I wasn't there, as if I wasn't a person. And I was very confronting as a young person. Yeah, so I'm quite passionate about changing that and changing the value we put on particularly women's bodies. And yeah, for me, queerness like really opened that up a lot. I, um, I curated a show years ago, many years ago, about queer identity at Blindside and Archie Barry made a really beautiful video work and the line that they say over and over and over again in that work is, my body is not real, my body is not fake. And I think about that a lot. The ideas that we attribute to bodies are arbitrary and often accepted but don't really exist. Yes. And the power of transformation the power of rearticulation. Bodies are very malleable substances that can become whatever they want. And that's how you kind of take agency back in that space, I think. Right. As a dancer, do you come across people who feel disconnected to their bodies? And do you have anything to say to that? I really like working with like uncanny ideas. I like implicating the viewer in my work and making them reconsider how they're using their body in the space. So... My work for Conflated is a video piece but also a sculptural installation of a giant balloon that I made out of um, about 200 get well soon foil balloons, like the kind you get at like a hospital gift shop. And I painstakingly with a hair straightener sandwiched a bunch of them together and made a really <laughs> big balloon that I that I dance with in the video, but it's also present in the space and it gets blown up by an air pump, but it's also, it's activated by a sensor. So as the audience is working around, suddenly the balloon starts blowing up because it's triggered by their movement. And I think those kind of strategies for like how can you make someone reconsider how they're moving in space Mm. are really interesting for me. Yes. Something else I was thinking about is we're we're roughly, I would say, a similar age, around about 30-ish. And I feel like when we were growing up and even now, I mean, ballet is probably still the most acceptable and legitimised dance form. And then when we were teenagers, you know, there was shows like So You Think You Can Dance, which I guess showed another form of dance to the world, a bit more contemporary. And sometimes I think when dance meets contemporary art, I know a lot of audiences aren't sure how to take it. And I'm curious what you say to enticing people into understanding what you're doing when you perform. Yeah, I think, yeah, you're right in terms of how dance is represented 
like often people ask me what kind of dance I do and I say contemporary because like contemporary art, that's the moment that we're living in in time. And their frame of reference is So You Think You Can Dance or Dancing with the Stars. Oh, yeah, of course. Which is my personal favourite TV show (laughs) for complicated reasons. And rather than thinking about how we see dance, I try and talk to people about how they dance because dancing is a part of our culture and at times of celebration at weddings and 70th birthday parties and in the country towns where lots of people grew up in, dance is still a fundamental part of how we get together and do things together and share joy. Like I love dancing so much for its capacity to like let you have a good time and I think connecting people to that idea and that being something that's worth watching. For all that you've achieved, you are still a relatively young artist and I was wondering what you think defines this period of contemporary art. Mm, Yeah, it is, it is interesting. Like I've been an artist for about 10 years and I just turned 30. So at this like particular moment in time where I feel like I'm kind of approaching a different stage of adulthood and thinking a lot about what art I want to make and what conversations I want to contribute to. And I think we're reckoning with gender and sexuality across the board in society in really interesting ways. And the next generation seems to be thriving with a lot less concerns and shame and limitations than we had to. Um, So I'm really interested in those spaces and in how queerness can be valued in art without being ostracised or put at the margins. And that's really nice to see that that is shifting and like big gallery shows, you know, Queer at NGV and the Paul Your Commission at Acker and yeah, the conversation that's happening around queer representation. Was it hard for you to figure out in your 20s how to fit queer representation into your practice or did it happen pretty naturally for you? Oh no, this is one of those things where like artists are just people. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I was like, it was, it was kind of difficult, but I had a big kind of moment. I, I've always dated people of all genders, but I happened to have a boyfriend for the first two years of my PhD and I was very hesitant to write about queerness and it just came through the research. Like in writing about my own work, I got really obsessed with like Judith Butler and Rosie Bradotti and all these brilliant queer theorists who talk about the body in ways that felt right to me felt like it suited my experience and what I was trying to say in my work. So then I was like, oh, I need to learn about queer theory. So I got a new supervisor and eventually she had a panel at a conference and I applied for this panel and I kind of publicly outed myself as a queer artist all of a sudden because all of these people in my life hadn't known. That's a pretty big thing to do. Yeah, it was. It was very liberating, I guess. As artists, sometimes the work comes first and I didn't know where that research was leading and it was a big, like, re-articulation of self moment. What would you say to younger artists about just any advice, whether, you know, it relates to identity or art making or navigating the art world? Mm. Ask for help, always. I think I am very, very lucky to have had so many opportunities and being asked to do, to make work and being asked, like being commissioned to make big projects, I feel extremely fortunate and very privileged to be able to make art and that be my life's purpose and have that be supported. But most of that happened because I was like, hey, 
do you want to get a coffee with me? Send an email to somebody I admire and ask them for advice. And I volunteered at a bunch of Aries and got experience and just went to every single show. And I think you kind of need to be on the ground and you need to see what's happening and put yourself out there as much as you can. And that was Zoe Bastin for this latest podcast episode, supported by Nets Victoria. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes. You can subscribe to the Art Guide podcast on iTunes and Spotify. And don't forget to rate the show as it helps people find us. Or otherwise, listen at Art Guide online, where you can keep up to date with art-related features, exhibitions and interviews from across the country.